Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related from interviews, reviews, top 10 lists, and everything in between. I know I'm back on a weird day this week. I think it's Thursday. I don't know. I've lost track of time. I've started to work what feels like nine days a week. Three days at one job, four days at another job, and then two days at another job. So, I mean, you could kind of do the math on that. Yes, all they're all on the same days, but still, you get the point. I don't have any days off anymore, so I got to kind of squeeze these in when I get the chance. It also kind of sounds like I have a cold, which I don't. I'm just very stuffy. Anyway, enough about me and my problems. Let's get on to today's episode. Of course, it's a weird one. It's always a weird one, but this one's a little bit eerier than usual, I guess you could say. This takes place in the 50s, and unfortunately it deals with the death of two young girls, but it also does involve a little bit of reincarnation. What do I mean? Well, you'll just have to find out. You're just going to stay and listen to the very last minute of the episode to find out what is just going on with the Pollock twins. You may have heard of them, may not have, but if you haven't, well, stick around because you're in for a treat. This is a story of the Pollock twins and their proof of reincarnation. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. The Pollocks, for all intents and purposes, had a very normal life. John Pollock was a devoted Catholic, and Florence, his wife, was a Protestant. They met in the early 1940s, and after tying the knot, they moved to Northeast England after giving birth to their firstborn daughter, Joanna. Five years later, they moved to the small town of Hexham, where their second daughter, Jacqueline, was born. Now, by all accounts, Jacqueline and Joanna were very, very close despite the five-year age difference. It was almost like they led the lives of twins. They did everything together, and they seemed to be on the same wavelength. The family was happy. They owned a grocery store where they were busy running a booming dairy delivery business. Joanna and Jacqueline got along very well, as just mentioned, and they often played dress up and put on performances while their parents were busy at work. Now, the relationship between Joanna and Jacqueline, like I said, was very, very close. Thick as thieves, some would say. Joanna loved to quote-unquote mother her little sister, Jacqueline, who looked up to her and admired her and everything that she did. Being the artsy little girl she was, Joanna used to make dramatic plays up and make Jacqueline play along with her. The girls would spend hours together, gossiping and laughing and letting their imaginations run wild. Whenever they had the chance, they combed people's hair for some reason. They loved the sensation between their fingers and they especially loved the way their dad's hair felt. And if those sound like very specific personality quirks, they are and they may become very important later on in the story. Jacqueline had very distinct body marks as well. At the age of three, she tumbled into a bucket and hurt herself, and she ended up with a scar on her forehead that was especially visible in the winter. Initially, Jacqueline worried that the scar would wreck her face, but Joanna and their parents reassured her it wasn't really a big deal. Apart from the scar, Jacqueline was born with a mark on the left side of her waist. These physical marks, both her scar and her birthmark, would be of great significance later on in the Pollock family story. Jacqueline went on to quote one day that she will quote, never be a lady. 
This was a line that left John and Florence a little bewildered when they wondered why their daughter would think she'd never grow up to be a lady, or I guess less specifically, an adult. Regardless of the strange, ominous quote, the family was happy. They led a normal, middle-class life until one very tragic night when a neglected driver decided to do some stupid bullshit and ruin everything. This happened in May of 1957. Joanna was 11 years old at the time and Jacqueline just 6. They said goodbye to their parents and headed off to church as they did every Sunday. They skipped along with their familiar route when they were joined by one of their classmates. This was not an uncommon thing, this was something that these kids did every week. Same people, same place, same time. This is the 1950s in small town England. Literally nothing ever happened until today on that fateful day in May of 1957. A woman distraught in her own life decided to take some pills and go for a drive. Sadly, that drive led her right through Jacqueline, Joanna, and their friend. The car was speeding towards them and they came completely out of the blue. The person behind the wheel, as aforementioned, was a local woman who had taken a significant number of drugs. She had been separated from her kids a few days earlier and the drugs were the only way she felt she could deal with the grief. This was an attempted suicide attempt on her part, which turned out to be very, very different than what she had imagined was ever going to happen. Unfortunately for Joanna, Jacqueline, and their classmate, they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. The woman was well aware that she was speeding, but the pills had distorted her judgment and slowed down her reflexes and any responses she may have had in a normal, everyday circumstance. Sadly, the three children died on the spot. Now, losing a child is probably the worst pain any parent can go through. Actually, drop the probably. It's gotta be the worst thing anybody has to go through. Be it your own child, or maybe a niece, or a nephew, or just family friend. Children aren't meant to die. That's not the way of the world. So how could John and Florence cope? How are they going to get through the next day, the next week, the next year, the next minute of their life? Well, for several months, the grief-stricken couple wanted nothing more than to take their own lives, which is, I think, a natural progression in how that would evolve. If Joanna and Jacqueline were no longer with them, why bother living, is what they kind of thought to themselves. One of the two, however, John was a bit more collected, and he was the one who raised the topic of having more kids. Now would be a good time to bring up something about John. No, he wasn't a terrible person. He was a devout Catholic, but despite that, he sincerely believed in reincarnation and was fascinated by the potential phenomenon ever since he encountered it in a novel at the age of nine. Florence, however, was a lot more skeptical as most people are when it comes to things like reincarnation. While the notion of a dead person reappearing in a new body is found in different religions and philosophies, it's not something Christians tend to believe in. Now, why is that important? Well, that is why John was a little more collected. That is why he didn't have such a breakdown when it came to the kids. And that is why, maybe, he wanted to have a couple more. He believed in this notion so much that he went around town telling people he and Florence were having another set of girls. But he was met with nothing more than solemn faces and pitying glares. 
Incredibly though, after a year of mourning, Florence gave birth to a set of twin girls. It's important to note that twins didn't run in either of John or Florence's family backgrounds. By all accounts, nobody had had twins prior to. In fact, during her pregnancy, Florence was told by her obstetrician that she had a single fetus in her womb. Nevertheless, on October 4th, 1958, Florence was gifted with two bundles of joy. They named the girls Jillian and Jennifer. Now, naturally, the Pollocks felt like this was a new chance at life. They were just gifted something that had been taken away from them. Sure, they'll never be complete as a family because their first two girls were gone and they'll never get that feeling back, but this is a new chance. They moved to another city and did their best to leave their tragic past behind. However, eventually the past did come back to haunt them. Eerily, Jillian and Jennifer started to act like their deceased sisters. At first, you can just write it off as mm, traits. You know, some people just have traits that overlap. Maybe it's a genetic thing. Maybe this family is predisposed to have these certain behaviors or markings or whatever, but it got a little out of hand at one point. Now, physically, the girls looked like Joanna and Jacqueline, but that, again, can be written off as genetics. However, there was more to it. They began showing similar behavioral signs that were hard to ignore. For one, Jillian and Jennifer each took a liking to their sister's dolls and stuffed animals. Again, a skeptic can even say, not that big a deal, kids like toys regardless of where they are, whose they are, or where they came from. Another weird sign, though, was that siblings often fight over toys, but Jillian and Jennifer were an exception. Jennifer immediately went after Jacqueline's toys and Jillian grabbed Joanna's. The girl said the dolls were Christmas presents from Santa Claus which was true for Joanna and Jacqueline. They had knowledge of a past life that they shouldn't have had knowledge of. As they grew older, their personalities began to take shape in a way that strongly resembled their sisters. Like Joanna, Jillian tended to mother her twin sister, Jennifer, who never opposed or fought with her. Jillian was more outgoing, artsy, and enjoyed putting on costumes just like Joanna. Jennifer was more complacent and often acted like Jillian's little sister, despite being born on the same day. Finally, both girls loved to play hairdresser, especially with their dad's hair. And that's one of the personality traits I said to remember because it was a little strange and very specific. Okay, so now we're getting into some creepy territory with the similarities, and these similarities began to spook Florence and John. But there was more. The girls also suffered from reoccurring nightmares about getting hit by a car, often waking up drenched in sweat and yelling, the car, the car, it's coming for us. John and Florence hadn't told the twin girls how Joanna and Jacqueline died. All they knew is that they had sisters up in heaven guarding them. For that reason, the parents found it utterly bizarre that the girls would develop such a strong phobia of vehicles. One evening, Florence overheard the girls talking about the car accident in great detail. Details that they should have no way of knowing. She saw Jillian touch Jennifer's head and say, The blood is coming out of your eyes. That's where the car hit you. According to John, Jacqueline suffered a massive blow to the eyes after the car hit them. Moreover, whenever they heard their twins talk about the accident, they often spoke in present tense as if they were living the experience all over again. If that wasn't weird enough, it gets stranger because of course it does. When the twins turned four, the family revisited Hexham for the first time. 
Keep in mind, the two young girls, Jillian and Jennifer, had never been here before. This is where the accident happened in the first place to Jacqueline and Joanna. To Florence and John's surprise, the girls immediately pointed out landmarks that Joanna and Jacqueline had been familiar with, like the school they had formerly attended. John didn't need much convincing that his twin girls were somehow connected to his deceased daughters. Florence, however, was still on the fence. She rationalized their fear of cars as taking after her fear of cars and their affinity towards certain toys as pure coincidence, which there is merit to. If mommy's afraid of something, then, well, there's a good chance the kids will also be afraid of the same thing. They feed off that energy. Just think of like a kid who falls down, a little toddler or something, they fall. What's their first reaction? It's not to cry. It's not even to look pained or in distress. They look at you for your reaction. If you run over and go, oh my god, little Susie, did you fall and hurt your knee? Are you okay? Are you okay, baby? It's going to start to cry. But if you just go, get the fuck up, you're fine. The kid's going to get up like nothing happened. Kids look to you for your reaction and they learn and inherit those behaviors based on what they see. So that makes a lot of sense. And as I mentioned before, toys are toys. The girls saw toys and went, hey, I'm going to play with that because it's a toy. But there is some strange coincidences still. One thing Florence just simply could not explain was that a white line Jennifer had on her forehead. She was born with a mark in the same spot where Jacqueline had a scar. And if that wasn't odd enough, she had other birthmarks on, you guessed it, the left side of her waist. Some believe that trauma can be passed down through generations. Some believe that a birthmark is the spot where you were murdered in a last life. Say you have a small red mark on your hip, or your waist, or your chest. Perhaps that's where you were shot, stabbed, bit, or injected. Who knows? It's very unlikely, but the fact that she had the same markings as a previous child in the family is strange. Over the course of spending more time with her daughters, Florence became less skeptical. Florence used to wear a smock while helping John with his milk delivery business, but soon after Joanne and Jacqueline's death, she quit and never wore it again. One day, John put the garment on while painting. Jennifer, the twin who resembled Jacqueline, walked up to him and asked, Why are you wearing mommy's coat? Jillian, however, didn't recognize the smock. The parents believed this was likely because Joanna, the older one, was at school when her mom worked and never had seen her in the outfit. Or, to play devil's advocate here, perhaps she goes, why are you wearing mommy's coat because it looked like a woman's piece of clothing. I could be wrong, I can't see this thing, but you never know. If Florence wore it, there's a good chance it had a feminine touch to it. Eventually, the Pollock story grabbed the attention of Ian Stevenson, an American psychiatrist who was deeply fascinated with the notion of reincarnation and who believed that studying it could indeed benefit medicine. He published a book in 1987 called Children Who Remember Their Past Lives. Not the most creative title, but we're talking science here, so kind of get what you pay for. In this book, he analyzed 14 stories of reincarnation, or what seemed to be reincarnation, and concluded that the process of rebirth could indeed occur. The Pollock twins' case is undoubtedly one of his strongest pieces of evidence. Digging deeper into the twins' case, Ian Stevenson noticed that because Jillian and Jennifer were monozygotic twins genetically identical, Jennifer's birthmarks were a mystery that genetics couldn't explain. That is a good point. They are identical twins, but only one has the markings of a previous life. The other one doesn't. 
Hmm. Now, that being said, there are some instances where identical twins have mirror image features. For example, instead of each having a birthmark on the right side of the waist, one will have it on the left and the other will have it on the right. But, in the Pollock twins' case, only Jennifer had the birthmarks. However, naturally, not everyone agrees with Stevenson. Some people consider the Pollock story to be a tale of wishful thinking, a pair of grieving parents and their false hope. John Pollock was a huge believer in reincarnation long before Joanna and Jacqueline died, so it wouldn't be too hard to see how this would be a biased mind and would create or inflate certain things just for the sake of reinforcing his own belief. When grieving, our brains can defend themselves from the anguish by finding meaning in pure coincidences. Another intellectual who investigated the case was Ian Wilson. The Ian name seems to be a fascination with reincarnation anyway. But he was a British historian who investigated the case and claimed that Ian Stevenson's evidence was essentially weak and unsatisfying. According to Wilson, the Pollock twins could have easily picked up on specific details about their deceased sisters by overhearing their parents' conversation, which is again very true. As the twins grew older, their past life memories seemed to diminish, yet John and Florence still frequently discussed the similarities and the possibility of reincarnation. This surely affected the Pollock twins, who began to live up to their parents' expectations, whether they were aware of it or not. In the end, it's never going to be proven either way if these were reincarnated twins or if they just picked up on social cues, which is the most likely case, except that it's very difficult to explain away the genetic differences, such as the birthmarks on one twin and not the other, in the identical spots of the child who died with them. So I don't know, what do you believe? Do you believe in this reincarnation stuff? Do you believe in anything that religion or philosophy has to say when it comes to death? Let me know on the socials, which I'll give you in just a moment. But that's going to do it for me this week. My name is Indeed Casey, and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a five-star rating on Spotify, or you can still do the same thing on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called nowadays, and just leave a five-star review. Any five-star, any things will be shared on the show, so it's a great way to get a shout-out. If you do want to follow me on social media, you can do so on Instagram at Ominous Origins Pod or on Facebook at Horror Shots. But that's all I got for you this week. So until next time. <laughs>